Um, okay, before we, uh, before we jump into the passage this morning and the sermon, I'd like to talk to our young ones. Kids, if I could have your attention, I'm going to tell you what the passage is going to be about, and I'm going to tell you what my sermon is going to be about um, right here. So right up front. <clears throat> in Romans 8, 18, we're in Romans, and uh, the Apostle Paul says this. At the very beginning of our passage, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what he's saying is being a Christian is really hard right now, but it's going to be so good when Jesus comes back that the hard right now, it's totally worth it. So it's something like this, young ones. Imagine you have like the grossest, most boring job in the world. You know, think of something that's just like, like something like a meat process worker, which if you don't know what that is, you got to kill the animal and then you got to debone the animal. You got to cut all the meat up and get it ready for food for sale. Does that sound like fun? <laughs> then imagine you clean toilets. Imagine you clean toilets at an airport or, uh, you know, I don't know, or you clean porta potties. That's all you do all day. Or, or imagine you're a vomit cleaner. You clean your one job. It, you work at an amusement park. Yay. Except your one job is to clean up all the vomit. Or, uh, I don't know, imagine you're a roadkill worker. which is <laughs> You have to go around all day and clean up dead animals that have been hit by cars. Okay, so just imagine, or some, like, imagine you've got the grossest, most boring, awful job in the world. And imagine that one other person does this with you. Okay, there's one other person that does this with you. You'll have the same exact job. You both work 12 hours a day. Uh, and you work every day. And you get no vacation. And you got to do this job for a year. Now, here's the difference. You and this other person are going to do the same thing. But the other person is told that they are going to get paid at the end of a year $1,000. You are told that at the end of that year, you are going to get paid $100 million. Ooh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, okay? Okay, so... The two of you are going to do the exact same work for the exact same amount of time, and you are going to have completely different experiences. The other person is going to last maybe a couple days, maybe a week, and say, this is, I, can't, I can't take it. Like, this is too hard. It's too much. This is dumb. I quit. Meanwhile, you're going to be over there going, <laughs> as you clean up the vomit, you're probably like dancing, like all good here. How does that work? Same job, same work, totally different experiences. And it's because the nastiness of whatever it is you're doing, the long same day over and over and over, all that suffering, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the reward and the glory that is coming to you at the end of that year. Like how you do in the present is totally shaped by what you believe is coming in the future. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul, Paul is not saying, hey, that hard stuff in your life, kids, stop complaining. It's not that big of a deal. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, you're like the hard stuff in your life. Yes, that is really, really, really hard. But he also says, your present suffering, it is nothing, nothing compared to the future glory that is coming. That when you believe in Jesus, when you believe in the gospel, you know that nothing in this life, whether it's bad or good, nothing in this life can compare what is to come in heaven. 
and being with Jesus forever. So it's this thing of like right now, do you want to live life with hope in the midst of your suffering, like in the midst of all your hard stuff? If you want to live this life with hope, you need to get obsessed with thinking about the future of heaven, of being like raised up in glory and being with Jesus forever in heaven. You need to get obsessed with that. And you'll know that that future is not too good to be true. You know it's certain because you're also obsessed with the past of what Jesus already did for you. Because he lived for you, because he died for you, because he was raised from the grave for you, you know your future is certain. That's your hope. That after you die, you will live forever with Jesus in glory. This is what Paul is going to tell us today in this passage. This scripture reading this morning, it's in the New Testament book of Romans, chapters, chapter 8, verses 18 to 28. Uh, everybody here in this passage, everybody's groaning. Like everybody is groaning. Uh, the Holy Spirit groans. That's interesting. We groan. That makes sense. And creation groans. That raises some questions. Uh, spoiler, here's a spoiler. This is a great Easter passage because Paul is talking about the problem of death and he's talking about the solution of resurrection. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Please be seated. The way that Paul begins to describe what he's describing here is so utterly fascinating when we actually hear what he's describing. Creation groans, and it's been groaning with us ever since verse 20. It was subjected to futility. And it groans in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's Paul, and he's describing something that happened to creation at the fall when Adam and Eve first sinned. Okay, what he is not saying, this is what he's not saying, he's not saying that before the fall, creation was like one big marshmallow. And now it's not anymore. He's not saying, but before the fall, 
The world was a, hear me say that before the fall, the world was a threatening place to live. Even if Adam had not sinned and he had gone out of the garden, Garden of Eden, out into the wide world like he was supposed to, to be fruitful and to multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the whole thing, there would have been things that could have frustrated that mission. There would have been things that could harm Adam and Eve. Avalanches that could fall on them. Seas that they could drown in. Cliffs he could fall over. Uh, Stones he could break his toe on. The secret to God's blessedness in creation at the beginning, it's not the absence of threatening things. It's God's presence with Adam and Eve in the midst of those threatening circumstances, in the face of those threatening obstacles. The secret to happiness and blessedness in creation before the fall was not that the world was different, but that man enjoyed God's sovereign, absolute control to the last detail of whether your foot strikes a stone or a leaf falls from a tree. God's people would not fall off of a cliff. They would not drown in the sea because God would keep them from harm. And then the fall. And how on the contrary, when sin enters the world and God removes His favor, then you do strike your foot against the stone. Then you do drown. Then you do fall off cliffs. What has changed now since the fall is not the nature of nature, but the nature of man's relationship to God. And as a result, uh, as a result of that, the, the way in which God uses nature either to bless mankind or to curse mankind. Paul is talking about here what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapters 24 and 25 and 26 and 27. And Paul uses the same language. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 24.4. The earth mourns and withers. Why? Because, Isaiah says, the earth is now a covering for the dead. The face of the earth has become this death shroud. It's become this death veil over the face of man. The earth now hides the dead and conceals us. He says the earth is a vessel of the dead and it needs to be poured out. It needs to be emptied. And Isaiah says, and God will do it. The hope of resurrection, even there, right in the Old Testament, uh, uh, chapter 26, verse 19 in Isaiah, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. That's what Paul is describing. The whole earth is mourning together with humankind over this problem because Adam broke the everlasting covenant, and you got the fall. And sin, sin in the Garden of Eden brought human death into the world. And up to that point, Adam stood, up to, uh, before the fall, Adam stood on the earth as king over the earth. The earth was designed to serve mankind. Now man, ruler of the earth, now he dies. And he goes under the ground. He gets buried, and the ground rules over him. Him who was created from the dust returns to the dust. And Paul, like Isaiah, he personifies the ground of the earth as mourning this new role as the graveyard. That, that God, the graveyard of mankind, that God has obliged the ground to now perform. This new role. It, it, that it, it mourns that it has to take into itself humankind who is made in the image of God. 
has to take him in the dead. It must absorb the corruption within itself. The earth must now become the netherworld. The good creation is reduced to a cemetery. Paul says creation groans like a woman in childbirth. That's the illustration he gives us. And in that day, the way for a woman to give birth was through incredible sorrow and anguish and danger. The woman was always right on the verge of death. Creation is in the midst of death waiting to deliver humankind to new life. The earth longs for the day of resurrection because death is the hidden place. And Paul says that resurrection is the unveiling, it's the uncovering, it's the revealing of the concealed. That's when this problem of death and the grave will be solved, is when the dead are raised up. Jesus says, I mean, this is Jesus. Jesus says, right before his death and crucifixion, he says that the world will still be going on when he comes back. That he's going to die, he's going to be raised, he's going to leave, he's coming back. And he says when he comes back, you know, on Judgment Day, on the day of resurrection, he says the world is still going to be going on as, as usual. Like, you're still going to have weddings. Uh, you're, you're st- people are still going to be uh, uh, working. Uh, but the busiest and the most exciting gathering of people on that day when Jesus comes back is not going to be Wall Street, and it's not going to be someone's wedding, and it's not going to be the sports in some stadium. Uh, the most exciting gathering of people on that day when Jesus comes back, it will be at cemeteries. It will be at mass graves. We, we all know that death is wrong. Even if you're not a Christian, deep down we know we were not created to die. Which is why all of us, uh, why we ponder the meaning of life and death. It's why we talk about justice and right and wrong. Death is also why we suppress right and wrong. As in like, everyone else is wrong. Because if there is right and wrong, then we have to get to that point of admitting then there is a God. And if there is a God, then we'd all have to admit we're guilty. And we'd all have to admit that God is God and I am not and I've done wrong and I stand condemned. I'm guilty before Him. So, whether we realize it or not, consciously, if it's in the forefront of our minds, we're all out there desperately trying to justify ourselves. Deep down, if I know evil needs to be punished, then I need to prove that I'm not evil. Like, I'm a good person. I'm on the right side. Those who disagree with me, they're on the wrong side. And some try to suppress this this problem of death by giving into meaninglessness. As in, like, let's just eat, let's just drink, let's just be merry, for tomorrow we die. And they try this, and they spend the rest of these these self-indulgent lives with this nagging conscience that God has given them. They're still guilty, and death is still coming. So, some people, they keep suppressing their conscience, and some do it to the point where they don't hear their conscience anymore. But, we all still groan. If the physical, bodily, resurrection of Christianity, if that is not our ultimate goal, if that is not our ultimate hope, then you have to admit that all the evil and all the suffering that you see, all the evil and suffering that you experience, it's pointless. It's meaningless. And you have to admit that everything you are doing in life and working towards, you know, these cultural advancements that we're all a part of, 
from art to medicine to law to engineering to invention to food to service to building to finding jobs for others. Like, it's all meaningless. What you do with your body, what you do with sex, it's meaningless. How we care for children, to children being shot and murdered, how can you argue any of that, that anything physical actually matters if we're ultimately just headed for the spiritual eternity anyways? If it were true and we were just headed for just a spiritual disembodied eternity, then God's creation was a bad idea and a total failure. And God loses because without physical resurrection, death wins. There is no justice. There is no resolution to any of the physical horror that we now suffer. And what we usually think of as like the end-all, be-all, this, this state which is this intermediate state, it's not the final, this intermediate state of our soul in heaven and our body in the ground, that is not the future hope that Paul is talking about. Paul doesn't ever say a whole lot about that intermediate state because it's not the final state. What little the Bible does say is death is an intermediate paradise rest from the suffering and evil of this world that our souls caught up to heaven to be with Jesus until Jesus comes again at the end to raise us bodily. It's a rest, and this rest, the Bible says, it will be short. Revelation 6, at the end of the Bible, Revelation 6 gives us one of the most inside looks into everyone in heaven right now. It says that everyone there in heaven right now, they're there, they're with Jesus, they're loving paradise, and they're asking Jesus this, Hey, this is, okay, this is paradise, this is great, and when are you going back? Like, when are you going back to judge the living and the dead and to give us physical resurrection? When are you ushering in the new heavens and new earth? When are we going to abolish this divide between heaven and earth and you're going to heavenize all of creation? Let's do that now. Meanwhile, down here, this is not a rest in paradise. We are surrounded by evil and sin and the grave. And there's no place on earth that was or is or will be no place on earth that we can find the things that we now long for. They're not here. And we can't have them here. Somewhere in China, there is a Christian with their Bible open, and their lives look very different from our lives. And here we sit, the Scriptures opened, and we have the same hope. Because our hope does not involve here. Some of us think uh, this is as good as it gets. And we need to be honest and say, if this is as good as it gets, then all of this is not worth it. Because we say these things of like, I'm bothered by what I see in the world. I'm bothered by what's going on around me. Okay, Christians were saying that 100 years ago. Christians were saying that 2,000 years ago. Christians will be saying that uh, in 200 years if Jesus waits that long. Please, Jesus, don't, it, you know, it, they'll still be saying it until Jesus comes back. It's never been good enough. And it's still not good enough today, and it never will be. We've put, uh, we as Christians, we have put our hope in something we have never seen. 
and we can't possibly imagine how good it is. We just know, we're told, we believe it's really, really that good that it's not even worth comparing to what we're in right here. But here and now, while I'm waiting and longing for that, I groan. I groan for that. The pain and the hurt and the shame and the longing that you are feeling and experiencing today, it is real. It's valid. You're not crazy. And whether or not you realize it, you are groaning for heaven. And we, we should never deny that the world is painful. It is that thing. Life is hard, and then you die. We should never be afraid of getting involved with people who are suffering and suffer with them because you've got a hope that coexists with sorrow. You've got a hope that actually grows deeper with sorrow. There's a movie in uh, 1992, one of my faves. Uh, it's called The League of Their Own, uh, American sports comedy uh, drama with Gina Davis and Tom Hanks and Madonna is in it. It's a fictionalized version of the real-life All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. So in 1943, World War II is going on. Uh, the, it caused them to shut down uh, Major League Baseball, and so they start a women's league. Uh, and at the end, the best player in the league, Dottie, she's about to uh, face off. They're in the championship. She's about to face off against her little sister in the championship, and, and her husband comes home from the war. And she is just so overwhelmed and just undone. It, she's been keeping it all together while he's been gone. And now he's back, and she just kind of lets it all out. And so she's going to quit the game. And, and she's going to go back home. She's going to leave her team. And her manager, Tom Hanks, catches her leaving, and he says this to her. He says, taking a little day trip? And she says, no, Bob, Bob and I are driving home to Oregon. And he says, you know, I really thought you were a ball player. She says, well, you were wrong. Was I? And she says, yeah, it was only a game, Jimmy. It's only a game, and I, I don't need this. I have Bob. I don't need this. And then he says, I gave away five years at the end of my career to drinking. Five years, and now there isn't anything I wouldn't give to get it back any one day of it. And she says, well, we're different. And he says, Dottie, if you want to go back to Oregon and make hundreds of babies, great. I'm in no position to tell anyone how to live. But sneaking out like this, quitting, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Baseball is what gets inside you. It's what lights you up. You can't deny that. And then she says, it just got too hard. And then he says, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. It's such a good line. With just one qualification for us. Same for us. Only the Christian life is supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard... No one would do it. If the Christian life were easy, no trials, no suffering, no affliction, you and I would never think, I need Jesus. We wouldn't groan. We wouldn't have hope. The hard exposes our need. The hard exposes our hope. The hard is what makes it great. And Paul assures us here, because he, he goes on to say, like, in the heart, loved ones, it's not punishment. God is using the hard for our good. And in our weakness, he says that we are going to cry out to God. We are going to cry out, take the heart away. Give me relief. Give me rest. Give me something, anything different than this. God, please. 
And he says, and you should cry out. Even when you don't know what to cry out, you should just cry out. Because the, he says, this is because the Holy Spirit himself prays with you. And he prays for you with groanings. He says, too deep for words. The NIV has a great translation here. It says, with groans that words cannot express. And the point is, the point is, is that we don't, hear, we don't hear it, but it is happening. When you pray, your weak, not great prayers, they really do go all the way into the throne room of God where your Father hears them. So when you think about, when you think about like what you have prayed for versus what you're facing right now, and you're like, nope, no, they don't, like, no. Think of this. Wouldn't it be amazing if God always gave and only ever gave, only ever gave you what you would have asked for if you know everything He knows? Wouldn't it be amazing if God always gave you what you asked for if you knew everything He knows? That's what this says. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Looking forward with an obsession, an obsession for new heavens and new earth, that will give you hope. Looking to heaven right now, knowing you, your and the Spirit's prayers are being answered, that will give you hope. And looking to the past will complete that hope. The night before Jesus is going to die and go into the grave, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child has been born into the world. And all the commentators agree, Jesus is the woman in labor in this story here. That Jesus' death on the cross is like going into the pains of childbirth. The woman in labor is in this incredible pain and this incredible sorrow. She's all beaten up, but then suddenly a child is born. I've seen this girl I know give birth three times and go through a lot of pain to do it. And it's a, it is amazing to see someone in incredible pain one moment, and then in indescribable joy the next. When we ask, is this life of suffering, is it worth it? Like, is it worth it? We look back and see that Jesus took ultimate suffering, and he took ultimate death. He took... <laughs> He took the anguish of hell itself in our place because it was worth it to him. Because you were worth it to him. To deliver you from eternal death, to give you eternal life, to be with him and live at the ultimate cost to himself, totally worth it. We, we are groaning not just for death to be defeated. Loved ones, we are groaning for the grave to be defeated. And Jesus has done it. This is the message of Easter. He is risen. And he will get you out of the grave. Let's pray. Father, we praise your son as Savior. And we praise him as the one who is exalted on high right now, having humbled himself to death on the cross. He's been given that name. That name that's above every other name. He's seated at your right hand ruling over all things and doing it for our good. And so we, we are confident in the midst of these days.
We're confident that it is well with us. We're confident that it goes well for your people throughout the world, whatever comes against your people, that we are with you and that you are with us and that the gospel speeds on going forth to the ends of the earth. We know, we know, Lord, that in being a part of your kingdom, we are part of a kingdom that's going to endure forever. And so we know that our labors today, tomorrow, each day, across the years, we know they're not in vain. Help us, therefore, to love you, to love one another, to serve you, to serve one another with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. Give us that confidence that you are at work in all of it. We thank you that we serve him who first loved us and pray that you would bless us. Bless us and equip us for that wonderful task of proclaiming Jesus, that he is risen to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in his name. Amen.